From the outside looking in, Dr. Martin McNeil seemed to be a man who had it all. He was handsome, he was a revered physician who had a medical degree and a law degree. He had been married to his beautiful wife, Michelle, for nearly 30 years. Together, they lived in an affluent, gated neighborhood with their eight children. Yes, you heard that right, eight children in all. His children recounted an idyllic upbringing with loving parents. Everyone who knew the family thought the McNeils were perfect. But that image was about to be shattered. Soon, Michelle would meet a very suspicious death. And the father these children had always known would reveal himself to be a stranger to them, a man capable of unspeakable evil. The case of Dr. Martin McNeil had all the murder, drama, and betrayal fit for a lifetime movie. Except for his children, this wasn't a TV special of the week. This nightmare had actually happened to them. Right when this case was at the peak of public interest, I had the chance to sit down with not only Martin's oldest daughter, Alexis, but also with Martin's girlfriend turned nanny, Gypsy. A lot has been said about Gypsy in the press, especially by Martin's daughters. My intention was to go into this interview with an open mind and really listen to what she had to say. And what she revealed about her relationship with Martin, a man she says she truly loved, was as fascinating as it was revealing. On this first episode, we'll dive into the McNeil family dynamic. What was brewing beneath the surface in that sprawling house? What was actually going on between Martin and his wife, Michelle? And what happened the day she died? It's all coming up on Devious Doctor, The Life and Lies of Dr. Martin McNeil, Mystery and Murder, Analysis by Dr. Phil. I am Dr. Phil. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. Let's start with Michelle McNeil. You'd be hard-pressed to hear an unkind word about her. She died at only 50 years old, but by then she had lived a very full, you could say, a very blessed life. It seemed like she had been born under a lucky star. In high school, she was known for being as stunningly beautiful as she was kind. She was a cheerleader, the homecoming queen, a straight-A student. Anyone who knew her thought, that's a girl who's going places. Michelle was heavily involved in the Mormon church. And it was at an event for young singles that she met Martin McNeil. She was immediately drawn to his good looks and charisma, and he wasted no time in wooing the pretty blonde on the dance floor. At first glance, they seemed like a perfect match. 
within months of meeting, they eloped. Michelle was only 21 years old at the time. By 1990, Martin had become a licensed orthopedic surgeon in Utah and graduated Brigham Young University Law School. It was important to him to be successful, and the young couple was already well on their way. Time flew, and Michelle gave birth to four children in five years, Alexis, Rachel, Damien, and Vanessa. Michelle had always wanted to be a wife and a mother, and now it seemed like she had achieved her dream. But she knew their family wasn't complete. The couple went on to adopt four more children, Giselle, Ellie, Sabrina, and Ada, all from the Ukraine. Michelle fell in love with these little girls on site and welcomed them into her home with open arms. That was just the kind of heart she had. Now, they really were the perfect blended family. At least they seemed to be. Home videos show a mom and dad who adored their children. The McNeils took trips to Disney World. They threw Christmas parties. They're seen laughing with each other and embracing. Watching this footage, you would never guess the turn things would take. But this happy time, this image, this bond was about to unravel and unravel fast. In fact, things were already spiraling behind closed doors. The qualities that drew Michelle to Martin when they first met, his confidence, his ambition, they were the same characteristics that others seemed to find, well, let's just say off-putting. While people basically describe Michelle as an angel on earth, Martin had a reputation of being difficult to deal with. Some interpret his big personality as downright obnoxious and domineering. He was known for holding grudges and becoming angry when he didn't get his way. Martin's ego seemed to only inflate when the governor of Utah appointed him to be the director of a large medical facility he may have actually been becoming even more self-absorbed. But Michelle's family, the Summers, had not been fans of his right from the start. When Michelle's mother first met Martin, she didn't care for him at all. She felt like he was putting on a show for everyone he met. For whatever reason, she instinctively disliked him. Meanwhile, Michelle and her sister Linda had always been close, but over time, Linda viewed Martin as controlling and felt like he was deliberately trying to create a distance between Michelle and the rest of the family. They had even tried to talk to her about his behavior over the years, but their warnings seemed to fall on deaf ears. Now, what was it that triggered them early on? to feel that something was just not right with him. Well, we know that the number one tool of the abuser is isolation. If they're going to control somebody, hyper-control someone, the first thing they try to do is burn their bridges to the outside world, cut them off from family, alienate them from church, cut them off from friends. Because if you can get them isolated, then... An abuser has a better chance 
of controlling, dominating, directing them. Now, look, I've been doing this for over 45 years, and I've met many a spouse who had problems with their in-laws, problems with boundaries. And I can see Michelle's point in being loyal to her husband, Martin, because in the past, I've said, once you get married and start your family, there should be no division of loyalty. Your loyalty lies with your nuclear family, your husband or wife, and your children. And you have to put boundaries up when it comes to your extended family. Michelle's family was seeing a toxic relationship with a power imbalance when it came to her marriage. But let's face it, Michelle is married and has eight children. She needed this to work. She wanted this to work. Could she have been suffering from confirmation bias? Only seeing the things that confirmed her belief, what she wanted to be the case? Did she have a forgiving spirit? And oftentimes, in-laws hear one side of the story when a spouse comes to them during a tumultuous time with their mate, but they're never around for all the making up. So they get a slanted view of how the relationship might really be in its entirety. We just don't know what was going on in Michelle's mind. But her family felt strongly that they could see something was off with Martin. But as I say, Michelle was in deep. Eight children together, and she's a homemaker. She depends on Martin to provide for the family, and she's been with him since age 21. That's a long time to be dependent on someone. That's a long time to be out of the job market. That's a long time to define yourself as a stay-at-home mom. Was it intimidating for her to think that if I'm on my own all of a sudden, this might be unmanageable? Even though Michelle knew there were flaws in the marriage, there was a familiarity there. She had done everything to create this loving home environment for these eight children. And as we say, you look at the videos, you look at the pictures, you listen to the children. And at one level, it certainly seemed to work. The cracks might have always been there, but the whole family noticed a dramatic shift in Martin's personality when he turned 50. They feared that he was approaching a serious midlife crisis. 10 years later than most. All of a sudden, he started aggressively working out. Those who knew him well said he became completely obsessed with losing weight. His daughter Alexis said that he had sometimes pause in the middle of a conversation with someone and begin doing push-ups or jumping jacks. It was clear he had become fixated on his body, how he looked, how he presented. He had also began going to tanning salons, taking extra care in the way he dressed. It's one thing to take pride in your appearance, but this married father of eight was making it seem like he was trying to get back on the market. He was wanting to be socially competitive. At least that's how Michelle perceived his new grooming rituals. And it wasn't just that her husband of 30 years was looking trim and tan. He was also encouraging her 
to alter her appearance. Michelle had been and remained a beautiful woman. After all, she was only 50 years old, but all of this new behavior worried her and led her to fear that Martin just might be having an affair. That's certainly one explanation of why all of a sudden he would take extra care and pay extra attention to how he looked. She even went to him and point-blank asked if there was another woman in the picture. He vehemently denied stepping out of the marriage multiple times. Sadly, this would turn out to just be one of his many, many lies. He had been having an affair for years, actually. The other woman in his life, who we'll soon talk about, was Gypsy Willis. When I interviewed their oldest daughter, Alexis, she had this to say about her parents' relationship. How would you describe the relationship with your mother between the two of them? Um, I thought my father loved my mother. You know, they were married for 29 years and uh, my, my mom loved him and, and uh, loved her family. Did you ever hear them argue? I did, and my father was, was a controlling person. When you heard them, them fight or uh, argue, what was it about? The last time I heard them argue, shortly before my mother's death, um, she had, had wanted his phone records because she had found him calling this, this woman. And she said that she was not gonna let that rest, that she wanted his next set of phone records because he was denying this affair. Did you ever talk to her about that when you overheard that? Yeah, I did. I did. I talked to my mom several times. She confided in me about her concerns of my father and uh, So and Gypsy, Gypsy Willis was on your radar long before she showed up as a nanny? Well, shortly before, because as soon as I found out about Gypsy, um, my mother was, was, was dead a few days later. So the cat was out of the bag. Michelle knew her husband was being unfaithful and lying to her about it, and she didn't intend to just let him get away with it. Martin, as we'll see, doesn't take too kindly to being questioned or confronted. So when Michelle accused him of sleeping with someone else, he pulled a very manipulative move. Not only did he deny the affair entirely, essentially telling his wife she was imagining things, he planted a new seed in Michelle's mind. He suggested that maybe she could use some improvements in the looks department. According to Alexis, Martin was the only one who not only suggested, but practically forced his wife to get a facelift. Why did your mother decide to have a facelift? My dad out, out of the blue said, I want to give you a facelift. Um, this was the day after he conf she confronted him about being concerned about this Gypsy Willis. And then out of the blue, he, he said, well, let's get you a facelift. And she didn't want to do it? She didn't ask to do that? No, she didn't ask. This was, he said he was going to give her a present of a facelift. And she thought, well, you know, I guess I'll go to the consultation. And, and then she, she liked the doctor once she met him. But she, she didn't want to get the facelift, and especially right away. But he, he, did, he said, you know, you have to do it. I've already paid for it. Alexis went with her mother to the consultation with the surgeon, but the whole thing seemed odd to her. Plastic surgery, well, that was just not something Michelle had ever seemed interested in until Martin brought it up and seemed to push it. 
Not only that, but he wanted this done, and he wanted it done soon. Alexis was in medical school at the time and thought she had come home in the summer to help her mother recover. But Martin reminded Alexis that she'd be home for spring break soon so Michelle could have the surgery completed then. No need to wait for summer. Let's get this done now. So Martin introduced the idea of the facelift, Martin chose the plastic surgeon, and Martin decided when the surgery was going to take place. Let me tell you what this type of behavior says about a man like Martin. Now, look, I believe that people should feel good about themselves, and if they believe that getting some type of cosmetic procedure would help their self-esteem and they don't have unrealistic expectations about it, then fine, consider it. And if it's something they want to do and there's no contraindications, there's no unusual danger about it, then that's their choice. But in this instance, this was not her idea. And the way he presented it was, well, let's just say insensitive. He was adamant about it. Of course, hearing from her husband that she should consider a facelift was going to chip away at Michelle's self-esteem. She wanted her husband to be happy. She wanted to stay married. And she was at least partially going through with this surgery to please him. Now, I have to tell you, that sets off alarm bells with me. As someone trained in behavioral medicine or medical psychology, One of the functions I've performed in the past is to help plastic or cosmetic surgeons screen patients to weed out those that are doing it for the wrong reasons, weed out those that have unrealistic expectations, those that you will never be able to please. And one of the first things I always looked for was what was the motive? What was the expectation? Whose idea was this? Not only is it hurtful that he's the one telling his wife she should do this, he's saying he already paid for it. It's a done deal. So in a sense, financially, she's been backed into a corner. If she refuses, then it's like she's looking a gift horse in the mouth and angering him because he clearly thinks she needs this done. It's just very manipulative. Here, I'm going to give you a gift to change who you are. That's a contradiction of terms. How do you define gift? Maybe this facelift was a cover for what Martin planned next. But if it wasn't, what it was was a great way for Martin to take the heat off himself with the affair accusations and put the burden back on Michelle. You're seeing a prime example of Martin in control. He's telling her what to get, when to get it, and who to get it with. He makes the money. He's calling the shots. He is like the puppeteer. There's also this overarching theme with Martin where he is preoccupied with how others see him. He wants to make sure his wife continues to look good. He's showing how high a value he places on her physical beauty. He wants them to not only be well-to-do with the right house and the right jobs, but to look a certain way. He demands that others meet his specific standards. He demands that she be arm candy. He wants to walk in a room and people look and say, wow, look at that. In true control freak fashion, Martin was also planning his wife's aftercare. And it involved, you guessed it, a cocktail of prescription drugs. 
Now remember, Martin was a physician, so when he took it upon himself to consult with a plastic surgeon, the surgeon was open to listening to the medications Martin wanted prescribed for Michelle. Martin came up with a list. Here it is. Percocet, Ambien, Lortab, Valium, Finnegan. Some of these drugs are probably familiar to you. Valium is, of course, a sedative. Ambien is a sleep aid. While Percocet and Lortab are used to treat pain, Finnegan can also be used before and after surgeries as a way to control pain and nausea and vomiting in patients, particularly those that have been under general anesthesia. It also has a tendency to make patients drowsy. Add that to the Valium and the Ambien, and you're beginning to get the picture here. Of course, medications are often prescribed to someone after surgery, but this was quite a lengthy list. Later on, the surgeon admitted that had Martin not been a doctor, he wouldn't have prescribed all of those medications, and he certainly didn't intend for Michelle to take them all together. So Michelle goes through with the surgery that spring while Alexis is home to help care for her. And then, things got strange. After the first night Michelle was home, Martin encouraged Alexis to leave and go back to school. That, of course, was never supposed to be part of the plan. There was a house full of children to still be looked after and housework to keep up with while Michelle recovered. But... Alexis, wanting to please her father, trusting her father, actually left the house that second night and spent that night away from home. She didn't go back to school, though. She did return the next morning and was taken aback by her mother's state. She was heavily sedated. Of course, Alexis was concerned and went to her father to ask what was going on. Now, there has been testimony that he asked her surgeon to prescribe certain drugs for her and it the list to me looked like it went beyond what you would normally have to control pain from that kind of surgery what tell me about that i went in there the next morning and my mom was completely sedated um i i confronted my father i said what did you give her and he said oh i i must have given her too much and over medicated her and from that point on Uh, I said, I'm taking over the medications. You're not to give her any medicine. Alexis was, of course, worried and confused. Her father was a doctor. What on earth was going on here? I mean, he's supposed to be a cutting-edge physician. He doesn't make mistakes like this. You don't over-medicate your own wife when she's recovering from surgery. This just didn't click with Mr. Perfect. During the course of Michelle's recovery, she began confiding in Alexis. One night when Alexis was washing her hair, she broke down in tears, and what she shared with her was chilling. Was there a point at which she told you she was concerned about her safety? Yeah. What did she say? Um, Well, there were several instances, but the the last one was uh, while she was taking a bath, I was helping her wash her hair, and uh, she turned to me and said, Alexis, if anything happens to me, make sure it wasn't your father. If something happens to me, make sure what? Make sure it wasn't your father. Make sure it wasn't your father. Did that shock you? It did. I didn't didn't take it seriously at the time. I said, Mom, what are you talking about? He would never hurt you. And uh, a day later, she was dead. Now, look at this from Alexis' standpoint. 
Here, her mother is recovering from surgery and, of course, quite vulnerable at the time. She is heavily medicated and, in fact, by her father's own admission, had been supposedly accidentally over-medicated. And she's telling her daughter that she doesn't trust her husband of three decades? Alexis had to be wondering, is this my mom talking or is this the medication talking? At this point, it's understandable that Alexis was surprised that her mother had this fear. Remember, Martin's her father. She cannot even begin to fathom that he'd be capable of actually doing something to harm her mother. Sure, she's heard her parents fight, but even in the most fraught marriage, murder is not usually on the table, and certainly not in this family. But Michelle was genuinely distrustful of her husband. It was to the point that she asked Alexis to give her the pill bottles so she could physically feel the pills so she knew what her husband was giving her since her eyes were covered with bandages and she could not see. Now put yourself in that position for a moment. You've just been through surgery that you didn't really want to have to begin with. It's been hurried along and you've been push to do it before you're ready to do it, even if you had wanted to do it. Then you're blind. Your eyes are covered with bandages you can't see. That's very disorienting. And now you're being over-medicated. Is this paranoia? Or is this just a very realistic concern on her part? This is what Lexus has to weigh. And at this point, if Martin does have ill intentions, he's got his wife right where he wants her. She's just been under the knife. She's medicated. She's blind. She's not in any position to take a stand against him. He has the power. He has the control. But then... Things seemed to be getting better in the McNeil household. In fact, the night before Alexis was set to return to school, she was relieved to see that her mother was doing better. She was on the mend. She was recovering, and she was not over-medicated. On this last night before she returned to school, little did Alexis know it was the last time she would ever see her mother alive. April 11th, 2007, started out like any other normal day. Martin woke up to go to work and around 11.30 in the morning, he picked up their six-year-old adopted daughter, Ada, and returned to the family home. Once they got back to the house, Martin told the little girl to go check on her mom while he remained downstairs in the kitchen. Ada, of course, did as she was told. She ran upstairs to see her mother. Once Ada was in the upstairs bathroom, she started screaming for Martin. Michelle was in the bathtub, and she wasn't breathing. Let's take a listen to that 911 call made by Dr. Martin McNeil. I was calling in the bathtub. Who's in the bathtub? My wife. Okay, is she conscious? <laughs> Can you calm down just a little bit? She is unconscious. She's underwater. Okay, did you, did you get her out of the water? I can't. I 
As you heard for yourself, he sounds hysterical on that call. At least he was portraying himself as a man who was distraught. In fact, he was so frantic that he ended up hanging up on the 911 operator. She had to call him back. Okay, sir, the ambulance has been paged. They're on their way, okay? Do not hang up. I need help. Okay, sir, they're on their way. Is your wife breathing? She is not. I am a physician. I got CPR in progress. Okay, do you know how to do CPR? I'm doing it. Now, you can be your own judge about how Martin McNeil sounds on this call. And, of course, we all react differently in times of extreme stress, especially if someone we love is in harm's way. Some people go into shock. Some people become hysterical. Some people just don't know what to do. But Martin is a doctor. I very much doubt that he doesn't know what the best course of action is in a situation like this, and that he wouldn't know that the best thing he can do to help his wife is to remain calm, give the 911 operator all the necessary information so that help could get to his wife as soon as possible. Instead, this guy's hanging up on the operator. He's not speaking clearly. He's not giving the house address clearly. He's barking at her. Nothing he's doing is seeming to help the situation. I have to tell you, my read of the situation is that one could conclude that he is stalling, getting Michelle potentially life-saving help. It also seemed odd, at the last moment in that 911 call, he chimes in with the fact that he's a doctor. Wouldn't you think he would share that information right away and be, well, acting more like a doctor instead of hysterical and snappy? I mean, doctors know how 911 works. Doctors know that when you make the call, even though they're talking to you, they're multitasking and already dispatching an ambulance. But the most troubling thing there's the question of why on earth this doctor would send a child, his six-year-old, in to check on Michelle in the first place. It's just plain common sense. It was his responsibility to do that, unless having his daughter go in was another part of a sinister master plan. I have to tell you, the person that finds the body always goes really high on the suspect list, at least initially. So in the midst of all of this chaos, he once again delegates to his six-year-old daughter, Ada, to go next door to get help. Because as you heard on the 911 call, Martin was saying he was unable to lift Michelle from the tub. Now, remember, Martin has been working out He's been hitting the gym, he's been losing weight, he's been getting fit, and even with adrenaline pumping, he can't lift his wife out of a bathtub? So Ada runs next door. I can only imagine how frightened and confused this child is over everything that's going on, but she finishes the mission and returns with a male neighbor. Now remember this detail because it will be important later on. According to Martin, when he came upon Michelle in the bathtub, 
She was seated on the edge and slumped over her head completely submerged in the water. If you believe this story, then it seems feasible that Michelle may have been lethargic, possibly on pills and in the midst of drawing a bath when tragedy struck. But right off the bat, Martin's version of events, well, they just didn't add up. When the neighbor, Doug, arrived at the scene, he claimed that she was lying down in the bathtub and that he grabbed her legs while Martin took a hold of the top part of her body and together they picked her up and placed her on the bathroom floor to begin performing CPR. While doing CPR on Michelle with the neighbor, Martin was making it a point to convey that he was in emotional turmoil. Like a great Shakespearean actor, he would stop in the middle of CPR to scream out things like, Why? Why? When the EMS arrived, he was so hysterical that they pulled him into another room so they could focus on trying to revive Michelle. First responders could still hear him bellowing in the background. And here's another interesting fact. When Martin, a doctor, was performing CPR, no water escaped Michelle's mouth. When medics arrived and began performing compressions, tons of water came pouring out. Had Martin tried at all? His next move was to speak with Alexis and very abruptly tell her the news. And tell me about that phone call. Well, I had called, I actually had received a voicemail from my father while I was in class and I listened to it and it said, your mother's not not listening to me. She's getting out of bed. You need to call her and tell her to get back to bed. And I just thought that's really strange because she'd been doing so well. I mean, she wasn't staying in bed. So I called home and uh, no one answered. And during my next break, I called home again and my father answered the phone and said, your mother's in the bathtub and she's not breathing and I've called an ambulance. What was your first thought? My first thought was he killed her. You just knew it right then? I knew I dropped all my bags and and jumped in the car and started driving to the airport and I was just screaming that he killed her. He killed her. Can you imagine being on the other end of that phone call? All of a sudden, things are clicking into place for Alexis and she is realizing now when it's too late that her mother's worst fears may have come to pass. It's also interesting to note that Martin left his daughter that voicemail earlier that day. He's making a point to create the narrative that Michelle needed to be in bed and that he did not trust her to be up and moving around alone. That sets up his story of why she'd be taking a bath alone while in an unhealthy physical state. And yet, just 12 hours before this, Alexis had seen her mother and saw with her own eyes that she was recuperating, otherwise she would have never left. At this point, Alexis was the only one her mother had confided in. She was the only one who had known that her mother suspected that her life might be in danger. Despite the best efforts of paramedics, Michelle McNeil was declared dead. When Alexis arrived back home, she was devastated. But she immediately switched to investigative mode. In her eyes, Martin was no longer just her father. 
he was also her prime suspect. What was your first thought? My first thought was he killed her. So you get home, you drive to the airport, you get a flight, you get home. Tell me about your first interaction with your father when you saw him. Um, I walked right back into the bedroom and I went right to where the medicine was kept and all the medication was gone. And so I turned to my father and the first thing I said to him is, where is the medicine? And he said, I don't know, I think the police must have taken it. Later I found that he had had uh, my brother and his girlfriend uh, flush the medication down the toilet and throw it out. Why would he do that? According to Alexis, Martin said that the medication made him too sad to look at. This wouldn't be the first time Martin told his daughter something that did not add up. So at this point, we have a deceased mother and a husband who is doing everything in his power to seem distraught. But soon it will become clear that Martin didn't feel the need to spend time grieving over the sudden death of his longtime wife. In fact, what he did next would make him appear like quite the merry widower. On our next episode, the saga of the McNeil family continues. We'll meet the object of Martin's affections, Gypsy Willis. Who is she? And what does she have to say about all of this? That's all coming up next, and you do not want to miss what Gypsy Willis has to say. You've just been listening to the first episode of Devious Doctor, The Life and Lies of Dr. Martin McNeil, Mystery and Murder, Analysis by Dr. Phil. I'm Dr. Phil.